For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 11, which I entitled, uh, Setting Boundaries in a Spiritual Community. Um, you know, we've been studying Corinthians, and as you probably know already, this group had a lot of problems, a lot of blind spots, and there was some pretty serious immoral behavior that was actually going on in this group. Paul tells us in verse 1, it's actually reported there is sexually immoral behavior among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife. Savage. So apparently, Paul doesn't elaborate on this. He just says that this guy in their group in the Corinthian church was with his, his father's wife. And so it's not clear whether that's his stepmom or whether it's biological mom. Uh, either way, it's uh, pretty gross. In any case, it was incestuous. And so Paul is outraged by this. He says, you know, it's, it's, um, it's messed up that you would do something like this. And as we'll find out that they were actually tolerating this as well. So what does Paul say they should do? He says in verse 2, and you are so proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? You know, they must have felt like they were um, extremely tolerant and felt a sense of pride because of that. Like, you know, we accept this guy even though he's got these major problems. And yet Paul says you should have rather put this man out of fellowship, which means that they should have excluded him from their community. Now, the modern reader looks at this and thinks, what? How could you do that? You know, this guy, he needs therapy, clearly. I mean, he's, he's got problems. He, you know, there's something underlying this desire to sleep with his father's wife. Or people in our culture might say, this guy needs love. We need, we need to nurture this guy. Maybe that's what was wrong, that he, he just didn't have the kind of the love that he needed growing up. Some might say, who says it's wrong anyway? I mean, right and wrong, I mean, isn't that sort of relative? It, it depends on what you think is right, whatever floats your boat, right? And so, yeah, maybe that's not that cool that you're sleeping with your mom, but... I mean, as long as it's not really hurting anybody, it's between two consenting adults, right? You and your mom, then I guess that's okay. Well, how, how would the Bible respond to this? I think, first of all, we would say this is therapy. That taking these strong measures actually is redemptive. Also, the Bible would claim that this indeed is love that taking a stand on this issue is an act of love. You know, contrary to our world's definition of love, love isn't just like a feeling. It's not just tolerating people's behavior, even though we sense that it's damaging them and the people around them. It's not just caring for them and providing for them, even though we know they're headed in a really destructive path. 
According to the Bible, love is a commitment to give of myself in every area for the good of another. Again, it's a commitment to give of myself in every area for the good of another. So first of all, it's a commitment, meaning that we have decided I'm going to stick this out with you. I'm committed to you. And at times you may not feel like you want to be my friend or that what I'm doing is loving for you, but I'm committed to your well-being. And also that I'm willing to give of myself in every area. That means that I'm not saying this area of my life, I'll give that to you like my time. But when it comes to my emotional availability, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm in, that, uh, in for that. Others feel like, well, I'll show you, you know, nurture. I'll tell you how much I care about you. But when it comes to speaking truth in your life, especially if it's something uncomfortable where I have to confront you about an issue in your life, something that's damaging, I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. And so biblical love stretches us to do things that are even uncomfortable, namely showing loving discipline. And finally, it's for the good of the person. You know, there are times where we give people what they want, and that happens to align with what's good for them. But in some cases, people need to hear the truth. Sometimes we need to do certain things that people don't want because it's for, for their benefit. And we accept this in many different areas. You know, you think about, for example, a child, right? You know, I've got a little kid. And when we would go out in the summertime and play, you know, there's a busy street right in front of my house. And my, my two-year-old has no concept of the danger that's entailed in running out into the middle of a busy street. And so I might sit him down, I might instruct him and say, you know, you see those cars, those things are bad. They could hurt you, right? And I might even say, here is this line right here. You shouldn't cross that line. This is the, you know, the, this is the street. This is the boundary. Don't cross that. And, you know, maybe he decides he's not going to listen to me and starts walking toward the street. I might, I might call him back and say, hey, Get away from the street. You know, if he persists and tries to run into the street, you know, I might discipline him. I might put him in time out. I might, you know, scold him using a, a strong voice, you know, saying, hey, don't do that. And, uh, you know, he might cry, might get upset about that, but it's what's good for him, right? And so we understand that if something is harmful to an individual, that you do what's best for them, even though sometimes they don't feel like that's the right thing. And likewise, you know, God will at times discipline us. He'll call us out for things that we're doing, blind spots maybe that we have in our life because they're damaging and we don't quite realize it. Well, you know, the biblical definition of love entails discipline. It's not soft where we just look away from problems and things that are hurting people. Um, first of all, it assumes that people often mess up and need change. You know, the Bible, contrary to what I think modern people would say, would suggest that people are by nature flawed, that we have problems. We're prone to error. We're prone to rebel against God. We're prone to do things that are going to be damaging to ourselves and other people. And, you know, some self-righteous Christians might say, well, 
That's, you know, really for people who, um, you know, are not spiritual. And so what they try to do is they try to narrow the definition of sin so that it's exclusively things that you do that are external. And yet God says that sin isn't just about the things that you do that are wrong. It's also about the things that you fail to do when you know that they're right. Not only that, it also entails heart attitudes that we have, misplaced values. And so, you know, some of these self-righteous Christians might rain down judgment on people and say, you know, you're just, you're probably not even a believer because of the way you're acting because, you know, a real Christian would never sin. Um, you know, they're, they're defining sin so narrowly that, you know, they, they probably feel like they're pretty righteous. And yet, uh, when we look at the Bible, the Bible fits, it locks together with what we see in reality in our own lives that we're prone to error, that we're prone to falling back into these damaging patterns of life that we used to do when we were out in the world before we met Christ. And so it assumes that people often mess up and need to change. Also, it assumes that God's written word provides uh, understanding for how to change. You know, we need guidance. We need a reference point. You know, you talk to somebody and say, so what do you think is right and wrong? That's going to differ from the next person or from culture to culture. And so, you know, God says, I have revealed right and wrong. And it's not this subjective thing. It's not like the difference between whether I like vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream, right? Or whether I like this piece of art or whether I like the way this certain thing looks. It's objective, it transcends all societies and history. And some people might say, well, I mean, societies have changed, culture has changed, times have changed. Well, you know what God would say? I haven't changed at all. It doesn't matter. And, you know, God, he's not going not to change or accommodate his moral standard, which is based on his perfect moral character, in order to accommodate our immoral behavior. And so God reveals to us what's right and wrong. And we often need that because, you know, when we come into a relationship with God, often our sense of morality is skewed. Our, our moral compass is off of polarity. And so we often think what's bad is actually good and vice versa. But I think that there are various types of discipline. You know, in this case here in 1 Corinthians 5, this is one of the most extreme types of discipline. And obviously, this guy was doing something pretty damaging to his family and to his, him, himself. But I think that the Bible advocates for gradual discipline, that it doesn't need to go to that right away. First of all, the Bible suggests that we need instruction. So sometimes we don't know that certain things are damaging when we begin a relationship with God. And so, you know, we're not accountable for the things that we don't understand or know. And so God often will send people into our lives to show us maybe blind spots that we have or areas of misunderstanding, and he provides us instruction. And so for some of us, that's what we need. We just don't understand that we have a problem. 
And so God, through his written word, illuminates us so that we can actually see that this is an issue in our lives. In other cases, you know, we may need some encouragement. This word in Greek is... Uh, literally means to come alongside someone. So maybe in a case where a person actually knows that this is a problem, they know what the Bible's stance on this is, and yet they feel too weak because, you know, they, they've been living in this lifestyle for so long, it's hard to resist. Sometimes what they need is another brother or sister in Christ to come alongside them and to give them encouragement or to give them some help. And so we need to encourage one another. When encouragement fails, sometimes what we need to do is we need to admonish people. We need to warn them. We need to point out, you know, this thing, is, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt you long term. It's going to cause you a lot of grief. You're gonna, you've already seen the consequences of some of this already in your life. And, you know, if you continue along this trajectory, it could get worse. And so there's a warning there. When that doesn't work, we might actually have to rebuke someone where we're actually kind of strongly expressing disapproval. Maybe we paint a negative vision for him and say, you know, you see like your friend who's, who, who's doing the exact same thing that you're doing right now? You think they're happy? Look at their way of life. And so maybe we need to paint a negative vision for this way of life and to strongly warn them that this is going to be a real problem. And of course, in extreme cases, we may need to actually give them an ultimatum. This is in cases where somebody is falling into a serious, grievous sin of the kind that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2. And in this case, you know, we would reserve this for individuals who, first of all, claim to be Christians and are claiming to follow God, and who have decided, I am going to live this way no matter what. And so in that case, we have to say, well, that's incompatible with living this way of life and remaining in fellowship. And so we might actually put it to the person and say, you need to decide. And again, I think our culture is pretty shocked by that that we would do something like that. And yet, this is exactly what, what the Bible teaches. It's unavoidable. If you, if you want to look at the Bible and live in accord with what it says, then we can't turn a blind eye to passages like this because they're unsavory or because it doesn't fit with what modern man wants. Now, our culture does agree on some level that we do in certain cases need to give people an ultimatum. You know, you think about shows like Intervention where, you know, family members and friends will lure their, you know, hopelessly drug-addicted family member or loved one into a room and they'll confront them together and say, this thing is just taking over your life. And if you don't change, if you don't go into rehab, we're going to cut you off. And, um, you know, our culture accepts that, that, you know, it's important for us to, to set boundaries with people who are destroying their lives. Or somebody, for example, with unchecked mental illness, they're destroying their lives by not dealing with it. You know, sometimes uh, people in our culture will set up an intervention to confront that person, get up in their face and be like, this needs to stop. 
Or, you know, in the case of uh, people who are dangerous, you know, somebody who's violent. I don't think our culture would blink if we said, okay, this person is violent. We're afraid that they're going to, you know, lash out at people in our fellowship. And so we decided that we're going to exclude them from fellowship until that we can feel confident that they're not going to hurt people. And um, I think our culture would agree on these points that in certain cases, you need to take that kind of stance. But, but where we disagree with our culture is on what areas are actually serious and what are actually damaging. That's where we're at odds with our culture. Well, he says, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on this one who did this, even as if I were present. So he's like, you know, I have this authority because I planted you guys out as a church. And he says, I've already passed judgment on this person. He says, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I with you in spirit and in the power of our Lord Jesus, when it's present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved in the day of the Lord. What? Hand him over to Satan. Okay, he's not talking about human sacrifice, okay? Um, he's making a theological point that according to the Bible, Satan is the ruler of this world. And since um, Satan is the ruler of this world, what Paul is suggesting is that when we put somebody out of fellowship over something serious like this, that we are suggesting that this person, because they're living this way of life, need to experience the consequences of their life in order to wake up and realize this is damaging. I'm headed toward destruction if I don't listen to God. And um, he says, or, you know, I think, People probably would still say, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? I mean, he's so loving, he's so humble. You think that he would throw somebody out like this? Well, Matthew 18, verse 15 through 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins, and go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he does not listen to you, take two or more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact might be confirmed. In other words, you know, if you have a, a, somebody who is falling into some error or some moral wrongdoing, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to take them aside and, and gently correct them or maybe instruct them. And you want to do that in private. You don't want to try to bust this person out in front of, a, you know, a lot of people. But he says, if this person doesn't listen to you, if you haven't won them over, and it's serious enough, maybe what you need to do then is you need to bring a couple of people along. And in that case, what you're trying to do is you're trying to raise the tension to show them that this is really serious. And again, this is for stuff that's really serious, grievous sin, not you know, nitpicky little things that don't matter. These are things that are destructive, not only to the person, but also to the individuals around them. And so in that case, we bring two or three people and, and we plead with that individual, please listen, you need to turn away from this. But Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses even to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a, a Gentile and a tax collector. So this doesn't make much sense to us today. We don't have these around, right? But in the ancient world, um, Jewish people regarded tax collectors as traitors because they were working for the Roman government and they were actually taking money from their own people and pocketing a lot of it and giving the rest to the Roman uh, Empire. And so these people often were bands of thieves and people who were, you know, criminals that would gravitate toward this profession since they were already outsiders of God's com in, in God's community. The word Gentile just simply means, you know, a non-Jewish person that they would not associate with. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is that if the person refuses to listen even to the church, so you got to assemble the church if the person's not willing to listen, and as one voice, you, you're confronting this person and pleading with them to change, to have repentance, to have a, a, a change of perspective, a change of mind, that even in that case, if they don't listen, then uh, we shouldn't associate with them. And um, again, I think this is pretty strong medicine. Why would God call on us to do this? Well, I think uh, he says, so that the sinful nature might be destroyed. Now, you know, he's, what he's talking about here is that God wants us to come to a place where we are so grieved by the consequences of our sin, this destructive pattern of life, that we have an opening of the eyes. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, we forget what it was like to live out in the world. You know, many of us have experienced uh, the feeling of being out in the world apart from God, uh, giving ourselves completely over to pleasure and our desires, living a selfish life. And, you know, that the futility of that way of life caused us to feel this sense of emptiness and despair that ultimately brought us back to Christ, right? And so what Paul and Jesus are suggesting is that in some cases, Maybe what we need to do is we need to go back out into the world to experience what that was like in order to open our eyes, to help us to realize that this is destructive. And so, you know, what God suggests as, as his followers, that when we have somebody in our midst like that, who's, who's falling into this pattern, that if we have to remove them from fellowship, that, um, you know, if, if we continue to surround them with love and fellowship, that that might actually prolong and even enable them to continue in their lifestyle. And that's why he's saying that we should exclude that individual. And he says it's for the hope that, um, you know, his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Um, you know, when we talk about removing somebody from fellowship, this isn't like Catholic excommunication or something like that, where the person loses their salvation as a result of being excluded temporarily. But that, um, you know, the person, because they have a relationship with God, are actually saved. They've been forgiven. 
And so regardless of, of the discipline that they're undergoing, they can be assured that they have a relationship with God. And the hope is to restore that individual. Now, we shouldn't mistake discipline for punishment. I think that's an important distinction. You know, when we talk about punishment, punishment entails exacting justice. It's about retribution. Whereas when we talk about discipline, it's redemptive. You know, this person's uh, sins have been completely covered because of what Christ has done. And so the punishment has been paid. What we're looking for here is a change of lifestyle, a change of mind. And so God will often bring discipline into our lives as a loving parent disciplines, um, you know, his or her son or daughter. He says in verse six and seven, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you might be a new batch without yeast as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So he's using this metaphor of yeast. You know, in the ancient world, people regarded yeast as sort of like this contaminating agent that would spread through, you know, uh, lumps of dough. And he's saying that that's the way sin can, can operate within the body of Christ, that it actually can uh, contaminate or spread throughout. And he says, therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, but the yeast, uh, or the yeast of malice and wickedness, but the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And so what he's suggesting is that it's important for us to deal with these glaring issues, grievous problems in the body of Christ. Now, you know, we're not suggesting that we're going to nitpick people on every little thing that they're doing. You know, we don't want to be the sin police. But this is in cases where, you know, somebody is brazen and saying, you know, I'm going to do this no matter what. What are you going to do about it? And in those cases, when somebody says, you know, uh, there's nothing you can do about it, in that case, God says that we need to take a stand. And part of this is to protect the authenticity of our community. You know, the biggest complaint that non-Christian people have about Christianity isn't the Bible, it isn't Jesus, it's the people of God. In a recent survey, uh, the, the people studying, um, you know, uh, the views of, of Christianity and, and people's understanding of Christianity went out and took a poll and they found among people who do not attend church that, that 72% associated Christians with hypocrisy. And yet, of those same respondents, 78% said that they would consider listening to somebody present a, a case about Christianity, uh, but that they dislike Christians. And so, you know, that's one of the things that really bothers people about Christianity is that there's so much hypocrisy in the church where, you know, people say and, and, and claim that they do certain things, but then when you look at their lives, they're doing just the opposite, something completely different. So I guess, you know, we should ask ourselves this question. What would happen to a group if it failed to practice loving discipline? Well, first of all, ignoring the most basic moral teachings of the Bible would make a group seem really phony. 
totally fake. You know, some of us have had that experience of going to like youth groups growing up. And, um, you know, you'd, you'd hear uh, the guy, you know, who acts like he's real spiritual at youth group, but, you know, he's, he's a known drug addict and he's selling drugs at school. And you're like, why, sh- why should I listen to these Christians? You know, they act like they're all holy and spiritual, but we really know what they're acting like at, at school and, and everywhere else outside of church. And so, you know, to preserve authenticity um, and, and to make r- community seem real, uh, God says that we should practice loving discipline. Otherwise, what we're doing here is a complete sham. It shows that this is just a big joke where everybody's pretending. But once you introduce the idea of discipline, it suggests this is real. People actually care about following God here. Also, the permissive attitude in a group can become contagious when they realize that there's just this attitude like anything goes, nothing matters. Um, I think that people who are trying to resist uh, and, and feel weak toward, you know, these addictions that they have, they might just fall back into it and just be like, well, I guess everybody else is doing this. It doesn't matter. Third, it leads to surface level relating and disengagement. Yeah, when you know that there's all of this immoral behavior going on and you know you're into it too, you're not going to want to dig in deep with people and ask them questions about their lives because you know what you're going to uncover. And you're afraid of what they might uncover in your life. And so there's sort of this conspiracy of silence where we just don't ask each other deep questions, even though we know that there are glaring problems right underneath the surface. Also, people's lives don't change. You know, when we fail to to enact loving discipline. And finally, God won't empower a group like this, you know. Maybe a group in the short term will see people come to Christ, but I think as hypocrisy starts to spread and people realize this is not real, we're just pretending here, like we're actually spiritual and that we want to follow God, then we'll see that you know a group like this won't be vibrant over the long haul. Well, he says, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Apparently, they misunderstood what Paul said in a previous letter and thought that they needed to avoid all people who are sinners. And he's like, in order to do that, you'd have to leave this world because, you know, you can't escape yourself. You got problems. And so he's saying, no, I'm not saying you should, you should withdraw yourself from the world. In fact, God doesn't want us to do that. He doesn't want us to become uh, cloisters of Christianity where we're trying to, you know, protect ourselves from the sin out there. God wants us to be a light to the world. Instead, he says, I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral a greedy, an idolater, slanderer, drunkard, or a swindler with such a man, don't even eat with him. Okay. So he says, this is reserved for people who claim to be genuine followers of Christ. And again, we have a category for this, I think, in our culture. 
where, you know, imagine if um, somebody was a member of Greenpeace, for example, and decided one day that they're going to sell their Prius and buy a Hummer because they don't believe that global warming is real. You know, would we, would we find it problematic for Greenpeace to be like, uh, we're going to revoke your, your um, membership to Greenpeace because of this? We'd be like, yeah, that makes sense, right? Or maybe on the opposite side of things, imagine if you were like a member of the NRA, right? And let's say the NRA found out that you were lobbying to try to get stricter gun laws, uh, because you believe that, you know, um, you know, guns are the problem or whatever in, in all these shootings. If the NRA found out about that and decided to kick you out of the NRA, I mean, that would make sense, right? And so we understand that there are boundaries that need to be set. And so likewise, when you have somebody who's, who claims to be following God and claims to be a member of your church, and yet persists in this lifestyle of immorality and is brazen about it and saying, what are you going to do about it? Make me. In that case, we have to take a stand. And um, again, you know, we're, we're not saying that somebody who doesn't even claim to be a Christian who's attending any of our meetings, that we would enact something like that on, on these individuals because they don't even buy into the morals of the Bible. They're not sure they believe in the Bible. So he goes through this list. He says, those who are sexually immoral, and this is not just talking about coitus. It's also talking about a broad type of sexual immorality. The Greek word for immorality is pornea. Um, and so it encompasses a variety of different sexual acts. And really, you know, God's definition for sexuality is that it needs to take place in a monogamous, committed relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. That's God's design for sexuality, even though our culture may not agree with that. Also, uh, this would be for those who are greedy, and the word that uh, he uses here is pleonexia. It's the continual thirst for more. And so it's this materialistic way of life. And so there are cases where, you know, individuals are living materialistically and are even maybe promoting it, telling people that they need to live a materialistic way of life and make that the number one value. And in that case, God says, that's a real problem. Can't have that in the church. Also, um, uh, an idolater, this is somebody who is an idol worshiper. Of course, this was in the ancient world where uh, people you know, had a variety of different religions around and where they believe that you could just sort of, you know, piece together a religion based on a variety of different beliefs. And so in that case, you know, God says uh, that's a real problem. And in our case, that could mean uh, promoting and teaching a religion and trying to convert people to that religion uh, within our fellowship. A slander is somebody who is a reviler, somebody who is actively spreading lies about other individuals. Um, a drunkard, which, you know, this just means intoxication. In the ancient world, that's the way that people got intoxicated today. There's a variety of different ways to get intoxicated, so this would include uh, drugs of various kinds. 
And, you know, again, we would agree with our culture on this that there are some addictions that are just so damaging, so overpowering, so destructive that we have to do something about it. We can't just stand there and, and, and watch our family member, our loved one, waste away because of this addiction. And in some cases, you'll see parents who have enough fiber or family, family members with enough fiber to be like, if you are going to continue to drink, you need to move out. I'm not going to help you. And that's essentially the stance that God is calling for us to take as well. The swindler, this is somebody who's a con artist, somebody who's actively stealing. Um, You know, these are in pretty serious cases. You know, recently, a few years ago, we had a case where a guy um, had, while his roommates were out of town, uh, he staged a robbery at his house and ransacked the house and stole all of his uh, roommate's goods. And when they got home, you know, he filed a police report and made it seem like, uh, you know, some burglars came in and stole all of their stuff. And they found out that it was actually him because as they were going to the dumpster in the back of their house, they found a receipt from a pawn shop with his name on it with all of the items. Yeah. So what are we, we going to do? We're going to look at that and be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That's unfortunate that you did that. Or, you know, another case where a guy, he was handling um, the house bills for um, a bunch of his friends that he was living with, and over the course of two or three years was siphoning money out of their account and walked away with thousands of dollars of their money. So what are we supposed to do? We're just not supposed to question that? We're not supposed to do anything about that? I mean, that's a, that's a moral outrage that we would allow anything like that to happen. He said, and you know, really, the list could, could continue here. If you look throughout the New Testament, for example, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, talks about the person who's living an unruly life, you know, unwilling to support themselves, and maybe they have responsibilities to support their family, and instead, uh, they're not working. They're just living off of their family members. In that case, God says that that's a real problem. And that, you know, when somebody is living that way, he says, if they won't work, they shouldn't eat. And so, we shouldn't enable people who have decided that they're going to live this lazy uh, lifestyle by supporting that, giving them money paying for their food, paying for their bills. Also, uh, Titus talks about, I mean, uh, Paul uh, in his letter to Titus talks about division, actively trying to divide the body of Christ is a real problem. And also uh, in 3 John, John talks about this guy named Diotrephes who is using church discipline as a leader to intimidate people and get his way. And in that case, John says that he's going to go and deal with this guy for his abuse of power. And so, you know, really when you look at the New Testament, it's representative of the types of things that we would exclude somebody for, but it's not exhaustive. Of course, there are certain things that the Bible doesn't mention that we should definitely take a hard line on. For example, um, physical abuse that might be going on, 
Somebody who's dangerous. You know, there's a guy who a number of years ago uh, confessed to a guy in his home church that he has homicidal thoughts. And uh, for the safety of that group, they were like, you know, you can't come out to meetings until you get some, you know, psychiatric help and get some uh, diagnoses because um, you're a danger to this group. And, you know, they, they provided avenues to try to uh, build this guy up spiritually. They would meet with him. You know, there are different outlets, creative outlets uh, for, for, you know, to help this guy out. But either way, the point is that there are things that the Bible doesn't mention that we would clearly say that just cannot happen here. And he says, with such a man, do not even eat with that individual. And so he's saying that we should not associate with him. And yet he qualifies this in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 15. He says, yet don't regard this person as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So we're not, we're not to treat him like an enemy when we see him on the street or, you know, at work. Um, but instead, we're, tr- we're to treat that individual as a brother or sister. But I, I do think that, you know, we shouldn't hang out with them uh, on a weekly basis and just pretend like nothing happened. Because we might actually be undoing the work that God wants to do in that person's life. You know, think about in Luke 15, when the son goes off with his father's inheritance and he squanders it on wild living and prostitutes until he's, he's destitute and in a pig stall ready to eat the swill from the pigs that he's, he's tending. And we're told at that moment that he had an opening of the eyes to realize how did I get to this place? And we're told that he went back to his father. And that's exactly what God intends to do through discipline. He doesn't want to hurt us. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to, to feel bad. That's not the intention. He wants us to experience the consequences so that we can have an opening of the eyes to realize, what am I doing? And so I think that, you know, if we meet with somebody who's under discipline, I think it's important for us to, to ask them questions like, you know, so where are you at with your relationship with God? Are you ready to come back? Do you see the emptiness of this way of life? So what happened to this guy after they asked him to leave fellowship? Well, luckily, the, the book of 2 Corinthians tells us what happens to this guy. In verse 5 through 7, Paul says, If anyone caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And so this guy eventually was restored back into fellowship, came to realize the error of his way, and uh, got to experience the love of community again. Now, you might still be skeptical. And I know that I was the first time that I had to sit through one of these meetings, which, you know, I haven't had that many in the 20 years that I've been around. But um, I remember just feeling like there's no way that this is going to help this person. And um, I remember sitting through one of these meetings where we assembled the church and we were confronting this person who uh, was just, just living this damaging way of life. And eventually this person decided that they um, did not want to follow God, and so they left. 
And I just remember feeling grieved and so sorrowful that this person didn't listen. And I still felt confused about why we did this. And so, you know, people brought me through this passage and, and laid out some of the reasons that I laid out tonight. And yet, over the course of the 20 years that I've been following God, I have seen positive cases where people, we, we have, in faith, enacted discipline and have seen people come back and have actually have been restored and have done well. Numerous cases. And so this works. Because, you know, God is the one who designed us. He knows what's best for us. Even though, you know, I think in our modern culture, it's something that we don't want to hear. All right, let's draw some conclusions. First of all, discipline isn't an effort to eliminate sin from the church. That would be impossible, okay? We're talking about only the most grievous, uh, heinous type of sin um, where the person has basically decided... I am going to pursue this no matter what, and I'm going to do this while I'm here. And in that case, God says that we need to take a stand. Secondly, biblical love entails a willingness to confront harmful and damaging behavior. You know, what we're describing here is something that, that happens uh, very infrequently. And um, for the most part, what we're doing is we're providing instruction, encouragement to one another. You know, we want to provide a positive environment to grow. And so we don't want to be nitpicky. We don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to be the sin police where we're trying to hunt people down for the problems that they have. But it's a community where we hold one another accountable because we say that we want to actually follow God. Third, if you, if you love someone, you should be willing to confront them if you see them going down the wrong path. You know, some of us grew up in families where we saw an individual in our family who we were concerned about, who we knew was destroying their lives, but we just felt helpless to say anything about it. And so we would sit through family dinners, we'd sit through gatherings, knowing that there's this pink elephant in the room, and yet nobody wants to say anything about it. You call that love? Call that acceptance? I think it's indifference. I think it's unloving. And so this may not be our natural inclination, but God calls on us to step outside of what is comfortable, to show loving discipline, to love people by speaking truth and love. And finally, God loves us and is willing to confront us about our attitude and the fact that we stand at odds with him. You know, if you're here tonight and maybe you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, you're, you might have been like, I may have walked into the wrong meeting here. Um, but, you know, I think the main message for you is to realize that, you know, God loves you and he sees problems in your life, but he wants to transform you. He wants you to, to, to break out of that habit, that way of life that's causing you so much pain and misery, that's causing you to feel despair. And the first step is to receive the forgiveness he offers through Jesus Christ. He confronts us, he, he shows us our problems, not to shame us, but so that we'll repent. And so you have that opportunity tonight to turn to him in repentance and to receive Jesus. So, all right, why don't we just... Uh
pray a little bit, and then uh, we can hang out. Yeah, I feel grateful that um, we're a part of an authentic community. We have a lot of problems, and um, that's never going to end, Lord. We're not trying to eradicate sin in our community. Um, But we do want to um, preserve its authenticity. We don't want it to be this uh, hypocritical thing where uh, people feel like uh, what's going on here is fake. And um, I pray, too, that uh, we would learn to see the value in your loving discipline in all of its forms. And um, I pray that we can practice that even down to uh, basic encouragement and instruction and uh, learn to take a stand on your word when people need to hear it. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.